So the Lord commanded us to observe all of these statutes to fear the Lord, our God, for our good always and for our survival as if it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord, our God, just as he commanded us. So with that, I would encourage you to listen to the statutes of the Lord, know him, wait upon him, and find your satisfaction in him. Amen. you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 as well in your notes or in your bulletins. Pull out those notes and uh, follow along. Take notes on them and uh, hopefully let's together learn this, study this, and uh, apply this to our lives this day. I will say um, this is one of those sermons that um, I, as, as I was working out th- this week, I told my, my wife, this is one of those sermons where I believe, but help thou my, my unbelief. I, I, I genuinely struggle with the uh, point of this psalm this day. Um, not be- I don't struggle with the belief of it. I struggle with the fact that I don't live in light of it. So may God give us the graces of uh, people to appropriate this, and and by faith, Lord, please increase our faith. Give us the grace to live in light of it. Psalm 127th um, is the psalm that we are on. Let me encourage you to stand together with me as we read this portion of God's Word. Hear now the word of our King. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children's children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed. When they speak with their enemies in the gate. As Father, reading of God's word, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time you've given us to be in your word this day. To fellowship with you with open Bibles, with the table before us. And the privilege that is ours to come this day and feast upon you by faith. To behold you by grace and by faith. And, and Lord, to fellowship with you now. God, we pray you bless this time. That the foolishness of preaching would be transcended into a glorious time of fellowship and encouragement for us. Lord, we believe, grant us the grace to appropriate this by faith, that it might become a a, uh, a daily, um, uh, moment-by-moment mindset as we work our way, as we travel to the glorious city of Jerusalem. We entrust this time to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Psalm 127, as I've titled it here, is all about the glory of sacred work. Now, with a title like that and with a theme like that, it's important that we understand the difference between sacred and secular, because we're talking about the glory of sacred work in this psalm. The word sacred simply means devoted uh, to God. 
It means to be uh, um, uh, dedicated or set apart unto the Lord. In contrast, the word secular comes from a Latin word which means the age. And it primarily deals with, it describes things which are part and parcel of the age in which we live. Now, this distinction between secular and sacred in church history resulted in a... um, um, a, uh, a, a bifurcated living on the part of God's people. Because sacred was when you did things related to God, like reading the Word of God, going to church, um, praying, fellowshipping with, with God. Those were sacred. Those were understood to be sacred things. And then um, you've got secular things like working, working at a trade, raising a family, um, cooking food, or changing diapers. Those are all secular. And those are all things that were not understood to be inherently blessed by God. Sacred things were, but secular things were not. Well, in time, throughout church history, there were people who said, I'm going to give myself full time to sacredness. And at first, after the persecutions, during the, the persecutions, the way you did that was by going out and getting martyred. But if once the persecutions ended, the way that you did that was by becoming a monk and climbing up on top of a pillar in the desert and spending your entire life up there devoted uh, to God, being, being sacred. Well, in time, this mentality emerged. It produced um, a, a group of people who full time devoted themselves to sacredness. We call those priests. And these priests, even though throughout the course of church history, there were times where priests were illiterate. They'd never read the word of God. Popes had never read the word of God. Nevertheless, they were viewed as these holy, transcendent beings who what they said was authoritative from God because they they had devoted themselves to sacredness, to a sacred calling. Well, when the Reformation occurred, they took issue with this doctrine strongly because God's word is very clear. For example, such passages as 1 Peter 2, listen to it. Peter, speaking to God's people, said, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own uh, possession. Peter says four things about every child of God in Christ. One, that they're chosen by God. Before the world began, God set his love upon you if you're in Christ, and he chose you to be his. Secondly, you are a holy nation. You you are a people who've been set apart. Holy means to be set apart. Set apart unto a specific calling and a specific duty in God. Thirdly, You are a people for God's own possession. God saved you for himself. If you combine the idea of of being a holy people and saved for for God's own uh, joy and glory, what you get is the idea of a saint. That's what a saint means. Someone who's been set apart by God unto his purpose because God claimed you. So you get a saint. And lastly, if you're saved by grace in Christ, you are a royal priesthood. Together, all four of those things tell us what constitutes sacredness. It is not so much what you do, it's whose you are. 
Okay? We're going to come back to that as we go on. Um, but that's the point of Psalm 127, what I just said. It's not so much what you do, but whose you are. This, that's the, the idea of Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. These two are couplets. Okay? Uh, Kidner wrote of Psalm 127. The opening verses are, in fact, contrasting two attitudes to God, dependence and independence, rather than two attitudes to work. See, we all get caught up on the, on the work. If I'm doing these things, I'm special to God. Man, if I'm, if I'm serving in Christ's church, if I'm, if I'm doing these holy things, that makes me special. But if I've got the ministry of ignominy, if I've got the ministry of suffering, if I've got the ministry of, of changing diapers, I'm a second-class citizen in God's kingdom compared to the spiritual giants who spend their lives serving God directly. See, that's how we think. Psalm 127 is going to correct that thinking, as Kidner already stated, to teach us it's not what you do, it's whose you are that make you sacred. Now, the author of Psalm 127, as the... the, uh, um, opening um, statements, a, a song of a sense of Solomon is Solomon. Solomon wrote this. He wrote Psalm 72. According to 1 Kings 4, he wrote 1,004 songs. Psalms. Okay? Two of which are in our Psalter. He also wrote a lot of the Proverbs. Right? And he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. A book which is dedicated to um, it's basically Solomon at the end of his life, looking back, having lived in sin and all kinds of, of, of um, excess, saying, let me tell you something. There's vanity. Much of life, much of what we value here is vanity. There's only one thing that matters, and that's what's sacred. Well, not surprisingly, first, uh, or Psalm 127 is a mini Ecclesiastes. Notice with me the very first point that is being made here in verse 1. The vanity of secular work. Notice with me verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. At the outset, we note from this psalm, from this verse, what constitutes sacred work. And what is it? Look at verse 1. It's bold. Unless the Lord builds the house... Unless the Lord guards the city, vanity, secular. So what makes a work sacred is the presence of the Lord in the life of the person serving God. If if you are in Christ, then brothers and sisters, our lives are sacred. Christ is with us and everything we do, God's doing it in, with, by us, through us. That's what makes sacred work. And what therefore makes the work of vanity is a work where God is not involved. Okay? Um, Think of it in this way. If you do the work of vanity, the house will be built. Okay? The city will be guarded. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain, right? The city will be guarded. The house will be built. But would you want to live in, those, in that house? Would you want to be a citizen in that city if the Lord is not working there? Kidner brought it out with the words as you've got them there. The house and the city may survive, but were they worth building without God? 
Without God's presence, without God's working, without God's uh, 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 providing the increase and the benefit. What is a house? It's filled with dead man's bones. It can be filled with strife and hardship and difficulty. What's a city without the presence of the Lord and God's people living according to him? What is it? It's, it could be a place of deceit and lies and horribleness, a ruin. So, brothers and sisters, the whole point is the vanity of secular work. In fact, let's look at that word vain. The word in the, in the Hebrew is shav. I memorize that because it sounds like shave. And you know how vain it is to shave every morning? So I've got a beard, okay? I've got a beard because I don't like shaving every single morning, okay? It's vain. It's shav. I'm shaving. This is vain, okay? The word vain means empty, vanity, deceit, or of no account, okay? The opposite of shav, empty, of no account, is kaved or kavad. Okay, and that's the word in the Hebrew for glory. Now, you'll know that word. That word means substance, of account, significance, impacting. It's, used, it's the same word for fat or weight, heavy. It's the word used when we say to God be the glory or God is glorious. When you say God is glorious, we tend to think, oh, he is magnificently shining. No, the primary idea behind glory is that God is a God of substance. Right? Um, the world has not seen a God like him who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Isaiah 64. Right? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God of substance. The opposite of that is vanity. It, vanity, the beautiful picture of that would be, um, you know how much um, water is needed to cripple, well, I forget, what is it, 10 city blocks in London? In terms of fog, do you know how much water's in the fog that cripples 10 city blocks in London? A cup of water. Okay, that fog is vanity. It, there's no substance to it. There's just nothing to it. It has such a great impact upon a city, but there's no substance to it. That's the idea here. So what God's talking about here is if you build a house without God's presence, there's no substance there. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing eternal. What I wrote in my notes and in my, my study is, when you talk about the issue of vanity or substance or glory, the question is, against eternity, measured against eternity, what good is it? What good is building this house? If it's void of God and therefore in eternity future, when you look back, will that house have significance? Will that job have significance? Will those burdens you're burdened with today, will they be in eternity? If they're not, it's the vanity of secular work. That's secular work. It has absolutely no impact, no imprint. How si- what's the uh, statement today? Your shoe size, right? Or your foot size, your foot imprint, right? They're talking about glory there. How big is your impact on this world? Forget that question. The big question is, how big is your impact in eternity? That's the idea. And unless the Lord's involved, your impact's zero. You can be the greatest superstar, the greatest athlete, the wealthiest person in the world, all the power in the world, a king, a queen, a prince, a princess. 
And if God is not in your life, if you're not saved by grace in Christ alone, then your life is secular, your life is vain, your life is a zero in the end. That's the point. Unless the Lord's involved, nothing. In contrast, would you notice the glory of sacred work, verse 2. He goes on um, as a repeat of verse 1. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for God gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Let's talk about this. Once again, reiterating what is sacred work. It's not the work that determines if it's sacred. It's the God involved. Is God involved? If you're saved, then you stand on holy ground. In fact, so much so, brothers and sisters, that what you do in and through all times has impact. That's the idea behind this. And it's so counterintuitive because we live in a world, or, or at least Western world, where we are taught it's the early bird who gets the worm, right? Yeah, this verse says it's vain for you to, to rise up early. Or we live in, in a world which says, I'll rest when I'm dead, right? Um, which is why this says, which this text says, that's ridiculous. That's retiring late, right? It's vain for you to retire late. Or we will live in a world that says, man, work your butt off at all times, right? Eating the bread of painful labors. Do you know how empty that all of that is? Waking up early, working late, resting, planning in your rest when you're, you're dead, working in between those times, just, just working so hard to exhaustion, Brothers, do you understand that God gives sacredness? God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Now, that being said, let me talk to you about three words in the New American Standard. Even in his. My guess is if you're not using New American Standard Bible, your version doesn't say that. Your version says, ESV, for he gives to his beloved sleep. New King James, for so he gives his beloved sleep. NIV, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Why did the NASB add um, even in his? Well, the nuance is certainly there. But the truth be known, all four translations basically are saying the exact same thing. A little bit of difference, but basically saying the same thing, and that's this. Brothers and sisters, God's presence in your life makes your sleep significant for eternity. Think about that for a second. Of all the things you could do this week, mention one thing that you would, one moment where you're doing nothing. The world would say, man, you got to get on it early. you got to work all day hard. you got to go to bed late. And thereby you'll gain what? The psalm says, Zero if you're without Christ. But if you're with Christ, you can do absolutely nothing sleeping. And that, even, and that is even sacred. You're on holy ground there. That will last for eternity. Incredible statement. In fact, it's so counterintuitive. We, we, we are the product of what has been called the... Uh, um, 
Protestant work ethic, right? You know what the Protestant work? Well, I got a definition for you there. Miriam Webster said, the Protestant work ethic is an ethic that stresses the virtue of hard work, thrift, and self-discipline. I got, there's another quote there. I'm not going to read it. It's from you know, um, Encyclopedia Britannica, sort of giving you the history of the, the phrase Protestant work ethic, where it came from, what does it mean? Well, brothers and sisters, I got news for you. The Protestant work ethic contradicts the biblical work ethic. And the reason it contradicts it, or more importantly, it eviscerates the biblical work ethic. Okay? Take out, God contradicts. Put in, eviscerates. The Protestant work ethic, which has shaped and molded America, the United States, for the last 250 years, that Protestant work ethic eviscerates the biblical doctrine of work. Eviscerates it. How so? Well, go back in time. The biblical work ethic begins with union with Christ. Begins with the saving relationship with Christ. Because I'm saved, my worldview is completely changed. I now live as a child of the king who have a future and a hope. I live knowing that what I do in this world has impact on eternity future. I live with a knowing that it is well with my soul in and through all things because God's in control. I live knowing that God commands the the seas. He raises the sun, or better yet, rotates uh, the earth. Brothers and sisters, he does it all. He knows the hairs on my head. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Because I'm saved, I know these things. And you know what happens because I know those things? What impact does that have on your work? If you know God is present in your life, when you're saved, you enter into the presence of God when you'll never, ever be separate from him. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's the knowledge. That's the foundation. When that's true in your life, how does that impact the way you live, the way you work? It makes you work hard. It makes you do your work heartily as well, uh, Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Why? For a lot of money? Because you won't get the worm if you don't get up to, you know, you know early? No. It's knowing that, the, that from the Lord you, re, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is, a, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What you're doing, you're doing for God. That's the biblical work ethic. And that did result in people working hard. But they're not working hard for the sake of working hard. They're not working hard to get money. They're not working hard to be successful or to be known or to be famous. The biblical work ethic says you work hard because you, in response to the glorious blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ, that's the biblical work ethic. So cast off, well, what happened with the Protestant? Protestant work ethic basically happened where a generation two all later, they did away with God. They did away with the first part. They eviscerated biblical work and stressed the results as if nobility was working hard, being self-sufficient, et cetera, et cetera. Brothers and sisters, that's not the biblical work ethic. That's America's foundation. Agreed. But the biblical work ethic begins and ends with Christ. And that's where the psalm is. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labor. You know what that sounds like? The Protestant work ethic. But it's this text saying that's empty. That has absolutely no impact. Why? Because God is the foundation. And he gives 
to his beloved, even in his sleep. He, he blesses. Your life is sacred even at rest. Your life is sacred in sleep. When you're awake at all times, you're standing on holy ground. Brothers and sisters, think of it in this way. You know, when you think of the temple, there were, there were three areas. You had the outside of the temple. Then you had the temple doors. You go on to the inside of the temple. That's the place where all the sacrifices took place. Okay? Then you go, actually, I'm going to say, well, let's say three. You got the place where the sacrifices take place. Then you have the holy place where the three vessels were, the bread, the, the incense, the uh, candelabra. All of that was, was the realm we've seen as dedication. All three of those items there speak of dedication, devotion to the Lord. And then the last place was the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat was, right? Well, brothers and sisters, when Jesus Christ died, well, before I say that, between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was what? A curtain. And what did that curtain do? It protected anyone living in the holy place, living in the realm of dedication. It protected them from the holiness of of God. That's what that curtain did. Well, when Jesus Christ died, the, the temple curtain was rent. What does that mean? So often we assume that means we now have free access uh, to God, and that's not what that means. That is true. We do have free access uh, to God. But the fact that that temple curtain was rent tells us, indicates that God has now um, invaded this world. He's now invaded your life. You no longer have the choice to live here, or in God's presence. No, you're always in God's presence. That's the doctrine of Coram Deo. You're always in the presence of God, waking or sleeping. And therefore, Psalm 127, verse 2, the glory, the impact, the weight of, of sacred work. Sacred work is defined, again, not by what you do, but by the God who's present in your life. If God is present in your life, then you're living in the presence of God. You are standing on sacred, holy ground, Always and ever, you'll never be divorced uh, from that. Incredible. Well, now you go, well, what impact? Explain that to me. Show me what that means. Well, that's the last part of the psalm. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 is a case study. Solomon says, let me give an example of this. Children. Okay? Now, when we start looking at Psalm uh, on verses 3 through 5, you've got to realize here that Solomon is choosing an incredible topic to apply this in because the topic he's choosing is a topic of vanity. In the ancient world, children were less of less value than oxen, than work animals. Children. Now, adult children, different story. But children, a man whose quiver is full of them, he's talking about two-year-olds and four-year-olds and eight-year-olds. Brothers and sisters, the ancient world, unless you were uh, incredibly poor, you didn't raise your kids, right? You put them off, especially if you're wealthy. The Caesars didn't know their kids. You always wonder, why would these kids grow up and kill their dads? They didn't know their dads. They never met their dads. or never met. They rarely met their dads. Okay? They, they didn't look at kids like we do where we have a baby and we just stare at the baby in our arms and oogle and ogle at it. That's not what they did. Those kids were a burden, especially if you were poor. At, 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 at best, they were sacrificial saw, uh, 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 fodder, right? 
Um, now, if they were enough to be raised, they grew up and they helped you when they were adults. But brothers and sisters, Solomon's choosing an area. I mean, he could have chosen so many areas. He could have said Gideon. Let me, let me tell you about Gideon, what the impact God has in people's lives. Let me talk about the Red Sea and the impact God has in people's lives. He could have chosen all of those, but those are all areas that are, we, we think of power and strength. We don't think of things that are disdainful. Or, or gross, not desirable. In the ancient world, not in Judaism, but the ancient world, children were not desirable. They were less than animals. So Solomon says, I'm going to choose, he's choosing a very, very heated point, a very charged point. I'm going to show you how this applies to something more disdainful than even sleep. Children. Let me show you something. First, notice a shocking reward. Behold. This word in, in both Old and New Testament is a word that the biblical writer uses to introduce something shocking. I like to translate it loosely. You're never going to believe this. Anytime I read it, behold in the Bible, in my mind I say, you're never going to believe this. Because what's going to come next is going to be amazing. Behold, children. What? Solomon, what? no way. Children are a, what? A gift? From the Lord? The fruit of the room is a reward? Are you crazy? But what happens when God gets involved in the equation? You know what happens when God gets involved in the equation? Those children who were a burden in the ancient world now become disciples in the kingdom of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk to them when you sit in the house, walk by the way, you lie down and rise up. Do you understand what Solomon's done? He's taken the one area that the world says, talk about vanity. And he's showing brothers and sisters in the hands of God. So we're not talking about children who are simply born and not raised in a Christian home, but children who are discipled. The disciples, Deuteronomy 6, Genesis 7, uh, uh, 17, 7. This covenant is for you and, and your children. Brothers and sisters, God's plan um, sanctified children from the ancient world, which thought they were nothing. He set them apart and said, these children are my disciples. Now, presuming... And you're going to see it in verse uh, in next week in Psalm, or next time we get to here, Psalm 128. Notice it says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That's the, what we're talking. If Christ is present in your life, you are fearing him and you are walking in his ways. So we're talking about children who are covenant kids, who are, who are being taught the Lord and being uh, confronted with who God is, being trained up in Christ. Those children are a reward and a gift. Um, right? So, um, in the context, Solomon begins with that which was in his culture most vain. And he says, brothers and sisters, let me give you a shocking truth. They are a reward. What's, what's God's presence do? They make children a reward. This is how sacred it is. Notice then that we go on verse four through five, a, a shocking reversal. Look what God does. Verse four. Far from being worthless, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. There's a commentary that I've got that said arrows were defensive weapons. That's completely wrong. They were wrong. He was assuming that. The other commentaries are right on saying arrows in the hand of a warrior were an offensive weapon. They were the means by which, they were the first things you, you did when attacking an army. 
you attack them with bows and arrows. If you're on the, the uh, uh, a city wall and people were coming, uh, uh, warriors coming from a distance, a threat, you began with bows and arrows. So we're talking here about offensive weapons. Do you know what God's presence in the life of a child does? In, the, in a covenant f- uh, family, presuming this child is raised to love and know Jesus Christ. Christ is present in their lives. They're saved, okay? That's the, uh, a prerequisite. If that's true, guess what God calls them? God, you, God's choice is to use them to advance his kingdom. All right? We call this the doctrine of covenant succession. We've talked about this. I've referenced it throughout the, the years. The doctrine of covenant succession is that, is that the primary way by which God advances his kingdom throughout redemptive history and church history is through covenant children. I'm saved. My wife is saved. We have six kids. Each love Jesus Christ. They get married. Now we have 12 people who love Jesus Christ. They each have six kids, right? It's, it's the navigator's exponential um, uh, you know, um, charts and stats. How many, how many uh, p- uh, people loving Jesus Christ would there be if we never fell down in terms of passing the baton, if by God and his grace saved every one of our children, they grew up and married in the, the Lord, and they had the same amount of kids that they grew up with. Good night. Talk about how expansive the kingdom of God would be. That's how God um, um, extends his covenant. Primarily. Now, he does do it through evangelism, certainly. But covenant uh, succession, or in this verse here, a shocking uh, reversal. In this day, children were liabilities. If you had a baby, if you had a child, it was money, it was food, it was time, it was, it was um, lost labor. My wife could be helping me in the fields. We can hire out the, uh, the extra work. But I've got my wife now dealing with the kids, right? I'm well, whatever, right? Shocking reversal. You know what children's are? We're not talking about adult kids. We're talking about here children who are kids, children who are non-adults. Guess what? They are the arrows in the hand of a warrior. Just, just waiting to be used by God to extend his kingdom, to exalt and glorify God, to honor the, the, the king, etc., all right. Um, Luther, I'm going to read this one. I referenced this a while back. I didn't read it. I'm going to read this one. Luther is addressing the very point of this psalm here. And that is God takes what is seemingly um, gross, insignificant, vain, and, he, and because of God's presence, he transforms it into that which is most useful in his hand. Notice the words of Martin uh, Luther. Alas, must I walk the baby, wash its diapers, Make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my my spouse, provide, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves... Why should I make myself such a prisoner? Or why should I make such a prisoner of myself? What then does Christian faith say? So that's the world's view of it, and that's why it's vanity. But what does Christian faith say? It opens its eyes and looks up upon these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit 
And it is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest golden gems. They're sacred. All of that is sacred. Being up with the baby at two in the morning, uh, crying because he can't sleep. Stenchy diapers, name it. All of it's sacred in Christ. It says, oh God, knowing what this is now, I confess today that I'm not worthy to rock the little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving thy creature and thy most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do it, though the duty should be even more insignificant and despised. Neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor will distress and dissuade me, for I am certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight. Brothers and sisters, that's the point of Psalm 127. All labor, all the labor that we do as servants is sacred by virtue of the fact that in Christ we are priests who live, in our, who live our lives in the presence of God. In Christ, our feet are always standing on holy ground. Appropriate this truth, brothers and sisters, it'll change your world. Now, having said that, disclaimer. This is not saying that the greatest blessing you could ever have is children. It's not saying that. Children can be the greatest curse of a person's life. So it's not saying, hey, if you, wanna, if you want fulfillment, have babies. It's not saying this. What this is saying is, take the most despised, despicable, undesirable place in your life right now. And because Christ is with you, that's sacred. He's choosing an example that everyone would scoff at. Choose the error in your life that you'd scoff at today. That's the application. It's not, oh, let's go have babies. Now, should our babies, yes, of course. I'm not saying anything bad about that. Covenant succession, Genesis 17, 7. I'm not doubting that. But I am, I am I, I'm telling you, the application of this is not, oh, let's go have babies. The application is, oh, where's the most despicable? Where am I at my weakest? Where am I, I at wit's end? Where am I? Is that cancer? Ill health? Unemployment? I'm struggling with, with, with some um, you know, internal strife? Where are you at your weakest, Christian? That's the issue. Guess what God does? In Jesus Christ, you got to realize you're on holy ground even there. What does Christian faith say to cancer? What does Christian faith say to the loss of a job, ill health? What does Christian faith say to all of these things? It says, I'm not worthy to suffer cancer today for you, Christ. Why, why, why would you give me such an incredible blessing to serve you as your child in this way? I'm not worthy of such a calling. Read the last part of Luther's quote. Wow. In fact, get this, brothers and sisters. The, your, the, 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 the weakest part of your life can become the most blessed part. That's the 5A. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. You know, the word blessed means, you can look at the definition I have there. It simply means to be envied. You know what God's presence does in the life of an individual? He so radically transforms their life that if you and I 
following Christ, trusting Christ in cancer, in loss of life, and think of all the horrible things, the despised things, the, 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 the things we don't want. If we're trusting God in those things, we can become the envy of the world. Remember, I love the numbers. Balaam looked at God's suffering people, persecuted people. He said, God, let me die like them. Let me die the death of the upright. May I look at non-believers, how they die, Baal, you know, Balaam. I, I don't want to die like that, God. I want to die trusting, bold like them. Let me die like them. Brothers and sisters, that's the point here. A shocking reversal. God takes the insignificant things of life, and because of God's presence in your life, or better yet, because you're saved by grace in Christ alone, you now are a holy people, a, a royal a, a priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own uh, possession, such that in and through all things, God is working his eternal will. This leads, this leads then to a shocking result. Now, once again, this is anecdotal. This is what could happen. Notice 5b. They, speaking of the adult children, they, these children who were as arrows in, in, the, in the sheaf, right? They, when they are adults, been raised to know and love Jesus Christ, they shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The implication here is by the gate, we know from Scripture, the gate is the place where they held trials. All right? You went before the, the elders at the gate, and, and there you'd be judged by the judges. So we're talking about a court case here. Right? So first, or, or Deuteronomy 21, 19, for example. Parents have the, a rebellious kid. What do you do? His father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of his hometown, the gateway of his hometown. Brothers and sisters, it's a place where you have legal proceedings. So this is what's going on here. There's a guy. He has these kids. He's a farmer. He has land. And he's getting old. He's losing his faculties. And someone in, uh, around them thinks this is the time to seize. I can, get, I can take his property. I can get his wealth. So he goes to the elders at the temple gate or at the gate of the city. And he makes an argument, a persuasive argument, proving that that property belongs to him. This man in his youth uh, promised my father all this money, and I therefore deserve all this money. But what a shocker for this man when he expected this feeble, um, mind, uh, uh, forgetfulness, uh, a man prone to forgetfulness, to show up and say, huh, you know? No, he has five, six, seven, eight, nine boys who show up at that temple gate with him and argue the case. That's the idea here. They shall not be ashamed. They're going to win when they speak with their enemies, their adversary in, in court. Now, this is an anecdote. This is not a promise that this will take place all of the time. But what it is is saying this is one of the things God can do with that which is most ignoble most shameful. He can, he can reverse it. He can take your cancer and use it to, sh to save people you've been praying for all your life. 
He can take that loss of job and give you the opportunity to redeem that time and invest in your kids or your wife in such a way that it, it, it impacts eternity. He can, take, he, can take, he can take all of these things and transform eternity and the future in this world. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, in essence, is this. Because God is present, the work that we do will never lack God's provision. That's the idea. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. Paul told the Corinthians who labored unto the Lord. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. See, God is the one who brings the fruit. I planted, Paul's watered. God is the one who causes the growth. So brothers and sisters, even in your sleep, God can bring forth growth. God can, God can bring forth eternal, eternal impact upon this world, even in your sleep. Wow. 1 Timothy 6, Paul exhorted the wealthy not to fix the hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Hudson Taylor wrote these words, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's uh, supply. He is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes for lack of funds, and he can just as easily supply them ahead of time as afterwards, and he much prefers doing so. So, brothers and sisters, we wrap it up saying this. This song is a song God wants his people to sing. He wants you to sing this song. He wants all of his soul, all of his pilgrims, the aliens and strangers of this world to sing this song. Because this world has a way of marginalizing, marginalizing men and women of righteousness. Doesn't it? You're not significant unless you can throw a football 80 yards. You're not significant unless you can sing like uh, Taylor Swift. You're not significant unless you have that house and you're not significant unless you drive that car. And you know what? That's the world in which we live and that's the world in which our kids are growing up. And their tendency is to think, I want to be significant, not like my mom and dad. I want, to, I want to own that house and drive that car and be famous and be rich. And God tells his people, sing this song and teach it to your kids. You are most significant in Christ. There is nothing wasted if you're trusting Jesus Christ. Your life will, will, will echo, will um, ripple into eternity. As we saw last week, you and I will bring our deeds with us. Revelation 14, 13, right? Our deeds follow with us. Not the deeds, but the praise and the glory and the honor that, that results to God and us as a result. So brothers and sisters... We are a small and insignificant people, aliens and strangers in, in a land in which we live. We lack much of worldly wealth, position, and power. In fact, let me be really discouraging here, and then I'll wrap this up with a discouragement. How's that? Honestly, 99%, 99%, maybe 99.9% of the Christians living in the world of today in 100 years will not be known. Go back 100 years in your mind. Can you name a significant Christian 100 years ago? 1923. Name a significant Christian. Well, I know church history a little bit. I know, the, I know James Gresham Machen and B.B. Warfield and all those people were alive back then. Okay, go back another 100 years. 1823. Can you think of a significant Christian? Just one? Just one. I'm going to skip over the Reformation. 
Let's go to 1323, 1223, 1023. Name a Christian. Just one Christian. One Christian. Yet there were millions. Brothers and sisters, I dare say, we live in a world where we, we are going to feel insignificant and marginalized. Psalm 127 comes in and says, Christian, don't buy the line. You are most significant because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So, peel spuds to perfection. Do everything you do with all your heart and all your might because it's significant in God's eyes. And it will enter into eternity. But all the wealth and the impact and influence of Bill Gates, I'm telling you right right now, brothers and sisters, in glory, unless he's saved, we're not talking about Bill Gates. In fact, that will seem, in the words of C.S. Lewis, we don't even think of him, but life on this earth will seem like a dream. It'll be dreamlike in glory when we finally arrive in the promised land. So, brothers and sisters, hear this song, learn it by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we look at this passage and it teaches a message which, Lord, I confess already that I struggle with believing. I'm so quick to measure my worth and myself by, by what I do, by how I live, by the impact of a sermon, the impact of a life of ministry. And Lord, to look up and and, and, and see children who have grown up and are not grateful, to see um, a spouse who we've served and loved and ministered to um, resentful. Um, Lord, it's so easy to get beaten down by the world in which we live and believe that we've been worthless. When in reality, oh God, this psalm tells, you instruct us to, to learn this song because this is truth. In Christ, we matter. Even when we sleep, we matter. God, I pray, give us the grace to to understand this, to appropriate it, to live in light of it, that we might be bold men and women of the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to the table.